Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hot take. I don't think Carol Channing and Marilyn Monroe are that different from each other. Interesting. Because that's what we always talk about with Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, right? Is that... It was originally Carol Channing's role on Broadway, and then when it went to the film adaptation, they got Marilyn Monroe, and you couldn't think of two more different performers. And yet, the technique behind their personas, like creating those larger-than-life personas, very similar. They, Yeah, they do very much feel like they're sort of performing femininity in a similar way with like different outcomes. That is something I was also thinking about a lot because, you know, I think Marilyn has talked about how she like never really felt comfortable being put into that sort of sexy role. And it was something that was sort of thrust upon her because of like the way she looked. And you Mm -hmm. can definitely, I feel like that discomfort sort of comes across. It feels very performative. For sure. Like you have these close-ups of Marilyn and she does that like mouth thing where she doesn't let her gums be seen. And, and so like she sings a lot with her teeth. Yeah. It's kind of incredible. And then you look at Carol Channing, who meant for the stage. Honestly, that face was meant for the stage, right? You walk out and she makes a choice just by blinking her eyes or not blinking her eyes. Like who, who can do that in a theater besides Carol Channing? So these are two icons, two blonde icons that have this role in common. And I don't think it's an accident. Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite shows in musical theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today, we are talking Gentlemen Prefer Blondes with Anna and Tim from My Little Tony's podcast. Welcome, you two. Thank you for having us. We're happy to be here. I have friends who rave about your podcast to to me, and that's why I reached out to you, was because one friend in particular, shout out Donnie, messaged me and said, I don't know if you know these guys, but I feel like you totally vibe with them, and they've saved me during quarantine. So kudos to you. I mean, we love to hear that. It's a lot of work, so it's nice to, to have it validated. But to pay you a compliment, um, I know no one else can see this, but I listened to three episodes of your podcast while I installed these shelves behind my head. <laughs> look at your gorgeous shelves. I'm taking all of the credit. <laughs> Those are great. Thank you. You are a reader. Tim can read, everyone. Tim definitely can read. I can confirm. <laughs> How did you two get to know each other? Well, it's actually sort of funny because we met in college in a film theory class where we watched Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. You're kidding. You watched that in a film class? It was a class called Gender and Genre. It was a great class. Wow. That sounds awesome. Yeah. We were sort of uh, hovering around each other, but we didn't really become friends until years later. I guess probably about four or five years ago now, we reconnected and we're like, we have a ton in common. And um, we were just, you know, chatting all the time and we were trying to figure out like some sort of project to do together. And then we were like, let's do a theater history podcast and the rest is history. Which is fantastic. I love that you take the Tony Awards as your launching point, because for people like me, the Tony Awards was like only second to Jesus's birthday in terms of (laughs) calendar events. And I would record it 
without commercial interruption on my VCR and then throughout the next year just watch and rewatch all of the ceremony and analyze the speeches and the performances because it was my window into New York professional theater. What do you love about the Tony Awards? <sighs> I mean, <laughs> you know, where to start? You know, I think like the the most interesting thing about the Tony Awards, like compared to other award shows, um, is that, you know, I think for things like the Oscars and the Emmys, it's it ends up representing just like a small portion of whatever movies and TV shows have actually like come out that year. But for Broadway shows, like, you know, it, unless there are some really notable snubs, like it really is sort of everything that's been going on in the in Broadway theater that year. Like it is very comprehensive and it's also like such a small community in comparison. So there's all this sort of infighting and drama and kind of like politics that go into it. It's, uh, you know, it's just a very fascinating sort of lens to kind of look at at each year. And I totally agree with that. And I think what adds like another uh, layer of interest to me is that like, it's all of that. And then it's now like how they are choosing to kind of like face themselves outward to like the rest of the world. And Mm. I think sometimes like in certain years, like presents itself in a very odd and like curious (laughs) ways that I'm like, is this really how you want the American public to think of you? But um, that's so true. I didn't, really think about that but the Tonys is largely responsible for how we as a musical theater culture brand ourselves to the rest of the population yeah which I think with my podcast is something that I've wanted to tackle head-on because so often Broadway is glitz and costumes sets blah 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 and I actually really think that musical theater is legit as a storytelling art form and that by looking at it and studying it and internalizing it, we actually learn a lot about who we are as a country, as a culture, and even just as humans. So I think that hopefully there's room for both and that by, you know, delving into these types of historical podcasts, people can kind of catch wind of that as well. Totally. And, you know, I think the Tonys are sort of like the ultimate representation of like the fight between art and commerce that sort Mm. of represents Broadway. This is the advertisement for the once a year, like big ad for musical theater and sort of, you know, whatever that means each year. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, interesting tension there. One of our favorite things is like in the late 90s and early 2000s, like they would split up the Tonys where um, they would have all the craft sort of awards in their own on sort PBS. Of, on PBS. My favorite. They would make like these little documentaries about it. And like I think that that for me, I'm like, this is like what it should all be about. Like have the glitz and glamour, but also like, you know, teach people about how much craft and artistic vision goes into all of this. Absolutely. Speaking of commerce and theater, it seems that every time we take and I by we I mean the collective <laughs> artistic community takes a musical and transfers it to the film industry, they always botch it, right? (laughs) In general. Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, however, I think is an example of the film actually improving in some ways on the original property. The film of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which I watched again last night just to reacquaint myself with it, holds up really well. (laughs) It does. And... I mean, it's in some ways it's hard to compare because they are so different. Like they really, they changed a lot. And actually what I was surprised about sort of getting into it for this podcast was that there were, the response was kind of harsh. Like people, there were a lot of negative reviews where they were like, Howard Hawks was the totally wrong person to do this. Like the direction is so awkward. And they like really Hmm. dumbed down the script and added all these like, you know, dumb gags where like Marilyn, you know, can't fit out of the porthole or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So which like, I mean, and I think like, I think now it's obviously considered a classic and I, you know, think it's very funny and great and fun but it is interesting to see like and I think that happens a lot where you sort of look at these films that are classics now and at the time people were like look at what society has come to that this garbage (laughs) is like passing as entertainment (laughs) like there was definitely a little bit of that sentiment kind of running through the uh the reviews it's also just interesting because like gentlemen prefer blondes like something I guess I didn't realize was that like 
it started out as a novel, then became a straight stage play, then was like a popular silent film that is now lost to history. It was a comic strip. Apparently there's even a wallpaper print based off of it. Like it was this like thing. That Sign it, me up. <laughs> that is every millennial's dream. I know. To eat their avocado toast while staring at their gentlemen prefer blondes wallpaper. Yeah, but I guess like with that, it's like I didn't really realize that it was such a popular sort of American you know, obviously, like, you look at all these tropes that, like, are so ingrained in our culture now, but, um, you know, I think that Gentlemen Prefer Blondes had, like, a big hand in that. Well, let's talk about the history of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. It was, like you said, a novel written by one Miss Anita Luce, who, I mean, that's a drag name. I'm sorry. <laughs> Anything with, like, the first name Anita, like, it seems like the the last name has got to be some kind of joke. Amen. So Anita Luce, who I hadn't discovered until researching this episode, a fascinating writer, witty and clever as can be, from Southern California, kind of born and raised in San Diego. And her father ran a theater company there that she would perform in. And then at the end of performances, they would present these one reel films at the end of the show. So like, the audience could stay and watch a film. But it was just one reel, so it was kind of short. And she would sneak in the back and watch. And it really kind of developed this love in her of writing, and particularly writing for film. She became a, a really smart subtitle writer for silent films, particularly with Douglas Fairbanks. Wasn't he like the swashbuckling sort of silent film star? And... Then Anita has this, Anita, because we're pals, has this really interesting experience in going on a cruise line in which she, as a brunette, was like struggling with her luggage and she saw a blonde doing the same and all of the men rushed over to the blonde to help her with her luggage. Meanwhile, she's like, thanks, guys. What gives? And <laughs> and on top of it, she's like four foot nine or something. Like, yeah, right. Just like the Very most petite small. little thing. Just like Kristen Chenoweth with a dark bob. And that gave birth to this character known as Lorelai Lee, who was a blonde and was constantly receiving the attention of the opposite sex. But tell me what you think, Anna. But I think this character is incredibly intelligent and in no way falls into the stereotype of dumb blonde. Um, yeah, I mean, I think she she has her own kind of intelligence. You know, she knows what her advantages are in in, you know, a society that reduces a woman's power to what she looks like. And she's like, I'm going to use that to, you know, secure my future. I like and I think I see I saw some you know, reviews of revivals being like, oh, the book is sort of dated and sexist. But like, I don't think there's anything sexist about acknowledging that. And I think there's almost, you know, a kind of empowerment in her attitude to be realistic and be like, you know, I'm not going to look this way forever. So I have to like, <laughs> you know, I have to use it, use it while I can. And, you know, these rocks don't lose their shape. <laughs> and in many ways, she's saying, if you're going to reduce me to my looks, then I'm going to reduce men to their bank accounts. Right. Right. And then once that's all settled and agreed upon, then we'll we'll fall in love. But like, let's get all of that nonsense out of the way, because ultimately, I think she believes it's nonsense. She's an interesting figure. And I think it, it does make a difference that it was written by a woman, even even by a brunette. <laughs> but fair enough. You know, like, I think this character could have been a lot more like mean spirited and sort of condescended to if it was a man being like, what, look at all these blondes who are just, you know, totally turning our heads and fleecing us out of our houses and homes. And it's, mm -hmm. it's her being like, no, you know, like this is sort of at this point, And I mean, even today to some extent, like this is our biggest power that we're allowed. So Oof. <laughs> I felt that one. Uh, I felt it. I also think because Anita Luce wrote this whole story, it's interesting that there are two main characters and they are both women. And I would go so far as to say, I think Gentlemen Prefer Blondes passes the Bechdel test. You know, I was thinking about that when I was watching the movie. I've, I think if it does, it does it by a hair. <laughs> yeah, because they're constantly talking about men. <laughs> 
but there are scenes in the movie where they're like working together to get the film from the camera or, you know, figuring out dinner. Granted, it's usually based around the drama of finding a man, but like they are working together from their own perspectives to do something that isn't entirely about a man. I mean, it is like a female buddy comedy more than it is like a love story. The the last frame zooms in on those two (laughs) at their wedding. Like, where are the guys? They're not in the frame. It doesn't matter. I know. That's the dream, like having a joint wedding with your best friend. And like, (laughs) I do feel like even though like the more normal kind of like romantic elements of it, they're all kind of like performative. And, you know, with all of kind of like the Lorelai Lee satire on everything, there is a sort of like idea of like taking these like things that society deems as like important and like making a game out of them or you know making it uh, kind of like trivializing it and showing how silly you know these institutions and things are hey listeners have you tried factor yet remember factor meals they were supposed to send me a box to try out but they don't ship to hawaii so now i'm stuck with my taco bell and now it's up to you It's up to you to try it and let me know how it is because it's May and we can't eat like it's the holidays anymore. We're trying to get our summer bodies together and Factors Fresh Never Frozen Meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting food. You can choose from six menu preferences to help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, whatever you want, it's here. Head to factormeals.com slash musicaltheater50, that's musical theater with an E-R, and use code musicaltheater50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code musicaltheater50 at factormeals.com slash musicaltheater50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Let's talk about being a blonde. Only 2% of the world's population is naturally blonde. 2%. Wow. That's just in terms of genetics. Because being a blonde is a recessive gene. So in order for it to be passed on, you usually need both the male and the female to be blonde. That being said, one in three women in America dye their hair to be blonde. Isn't that fascinating? In many ways, a huge percentage of the population is trying to become what only 2% of the population worldwide naturally is. That's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's like start. it's something that has just like kept evolving and evolving in our culture. And now it's, I feel like now the kind of like dumb blonde joke is sort of tired and no one thinks about it, but still that sort of way of thinking is like so ingrained into us and our culture. When you look back to where it began, we're talking like Aphrodite was considered to be a blonde goddess in Greece, where blonde people don't really exist, naturally, (laughs) right? (laughs) And then you see how that translates to prostitutes in Roman times bleaching their hair. So then it continued to be a very sexualized image and look. And then this is... Shout out Wikipedia, which I donated to because I use it so much. (laughs) You're the Um, 2%. (laughs) It says, it is believed the originator of the dumb blonde was an 18th century blonde French prostitute named Rosalie Duthel, whose reputation of being beautiful but dumb inspired a play about her. Wow, what an icon. (laughs) Right? So that's like 1775. When this play came out with this like dumb blonde prostitute. And so between the sexualization of this image, the addition of, well, if you're that gorgeous, then you probably aren't intelligent. And then I think like, what do you think World War II played into this? Because then we reach the point where it gets scary 
Like the idea of being blonde gets real dark. Oh. <laughs> wow. I never really made that connection. I don't know. I think there's something there is something sort of cyclical about like you know, there was this kind of like 20s revival in the 50s. And I saw something, um, and maybe this is getting off on like another subject, but it just reminded me that I I was sort of trying to unpack why they set the movie in the 50s. And there were some hints that it was because in the 1950s, there was like a little bit of a moral panic about like depicting sort of the excess and like moral depravity of the 20s in like a glamorous way. And even when you, I mean, the the musical was what, 49? And Julie Stein, who we'll talk about as the composer, did not write a 20s-sounding score for the show. It's very 40s, very jazzy. And it's also interesting um, because I do feel like in like the original London cast recording, like just the orchestrations make it sound like a little more 20s. Um, oh, do they? there's like banjo and <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, like 100%. Like I think it's like the banjo, but um, it is sort of interesting because you know. Also, the uh, additional songs that were written for the movie, I think, even take it further away. But I do think that, like, even if the music itself isn't 20s, I feel like the structure of the show and kind of, like, the content kind of harkens back to, like, the 20s style of Broadway musical, like, where you're sort of listening to the cast recording and you're like, (laughs) I have no idea what's happening (laughs) at all. Like, none of these, like, these all don't seem like they have anything to do with the plot, especially, like... So, you know, the reason one of the reasons we wanted to do this is because it did not get any love from the Tonys. It was just steamrolled by South Pacific, which is like, a, you know, a serious show dealing with very serious issues. This one's like, la la, you know, <laughs> right. Diamonds are a girl's best friend and sort of like stepping back into this kind of old fashioned musical that was beginning to um, maybe fall out of style a little bit. And then it becomes a big hit. Yeah. I mean, even though it was completely ignored by the Tonys, which I don't think they really had nominees at that point, right? No, just, it was uh, it was very opaque. They were yeah. just like, you get a Tony and we're and not going to acknowledge don't. anyone else. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So even though it, it didn't get any Tony love, it, it was a big hit. Things didn't really run for years and years and years. And yet it, what, ran 700? Is that right? Yes. Yes, 700. Which is a great, it's great a big run. run, yeah. Uh, especially for such a bonkers little show. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sorry, my dog is sneezing. Um, I did a staged reading of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes a few years ago for this group that I'm a part of called Musical Theater Guild. We we kind of do an encore type thing in Los Angeles oh, cool. where we'll do one night only stage readings of shows that don't get done very often. And so we did Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. And what I will say about the stage version is that the characters are so funny and interestingly drawn, even more so, I think, than in the film. That's what the stage musical does really well, is the characters. Each one is completely opposite from the other, and to see them all interact with each other for an entire evening is really enjoyable. Plus, you get all of the added music that got cut for the film. So it's still a really fun show to revisit. And uh, if you would like, let's start from the top and talk through it, shall we? Let's do it. Okay, so the show starts by introducing us to these two BFFs. Yeah, Lorelai Lee and Dorothy Shaw. I think Lorelai Lee is one of the great, all-time great character names, I just want to say. She really nailed it. Very good point. (laughs) On Broadway in 1949, Lorelai was played by Miss Carol Channing, and Dorothy Shaw was played by literally no one remembers. (laughs) It is not too bad. I think her name's Yvonne Adver, but she doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. You look her up, there's <laughs> nothing about her. I know, and Jane it's Russell crazy. makes such an impression. She really holds her own in the movie version, so I guess, you know, it was not that evenly weighted on stage. Yeah. Right? Well, Agreed. it was interesting because um, I, know, I feel like it's only a minute before we really get into this but um you know uh, <laughs> um carol was sort of like scooped out of this other show lend an ear where she and yvonne both like sort of played it was a review where they both played uh, flappers in one of the sketches and i think that like you know little by little like everyone came and saw and agreed that this was going to be their lorelei lee and I think that the Dorothy was also in the show. So they're probably just like, okay, and get that girl too. That makes total sense to me. Because it was kind of a, a similar thing in Lend Me an Ear, where Carol was the standout. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, it was like, who is this alien, this hilarious <laughs> alien? And Lorelai, the character, is from Little Rock, Arkansas. And Anna, you already brought up South Pacific. What is up with Arkansas and musical theater at this time of <laughs> in history? I don't, maybe if you're, you know, a New York intellectual, you're like, where's the middle of nowhere? Hmm. <laughs> Now, this song is called uh, I'm Just a Little Girl from Little Rock, and it's a great song. I mean, I think this is like the prime example of how disconnected the songs really are from the book where like her big character defining number like for the movie, it just gets turned into like a little fun cabaret number for them. And it's literally they don't have to change anything. Exactly. Right. (laughs) Nothing lost. But I do think, you know, I did read the Anita Luce book and like, I think that... Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, I lis- I, I'll, I listen to the audiobook. It's actually very short, but um, oh, okay, I do cool. feel like the place where the most Anita Luce kind of like shines through is like the lyrics to the song and the lyricist who uh, requested Carol Channing call him Uncle, Uncle Leo... I think did a really good job of um, like there are just like some verbatim. He basically took like 10 pages of the book and condensed it into a song. There I say bravo. (laughs) Bravo, Leo. So Julie Stein, one of the, you know, most formidable composers in musical theater history. At this point, he had had a big hit with High Button Shoes. And then he writes the score for Gentlemen Prefer Blondes which has three huge hits from it, including the one we're talking about right now, Little Girl from Little Rock. Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, of course. And then Bye Bye Baby. Those are all real earworms. Yeah, They are. They're have, all terrific tunes. I've had my whole house singing Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend all week. Just yeah. like, I cannot, <laughs> cannot stop. Yeah. I would love to be in your household. <laughs> well, you know, you got to rewrite the lyrics to be about like your pets or like, you know, whatever's going on. <laughs> Whoever's your best friend at the moment. (laughs) The lyrics were by Leo Robin, who, in addition to writing these iconic lyrics, is also known for writing Thanks for the Memories that Bob Hope made famous, for which he won an Academy Award. So he's a great lyricist, probably known more so for his contribution to film than musical theater. And yet these great songs started out in the musical theater. Now, in A Little Girl from Little Rock, she basically talks about how there's a guy who done her wrong and that she's going to go back one day and thank him because it made her leave and find somebody better and richer. Now, here's the, th- here's the plot problem with this, is that, spoiler alert, the big reveal at the end of the show is that her deep secret is that she killed the man from Little Rock because he tried to rape her. Super dark twist in the musical. Not indicated by those lyrics. Right? (laughs) So does that mean like Lorelai Lee is going to go to Little Rock to like the grave? (laughs) Because that dude's dead. Maybe she means just a metaphorical, uh, (laughs) you know, going to go and thumb my nose at him. But she's already done all the nose thumbing she really can do. Yeah. Right. I think that one's been laid to rest, (laughs) literally. But still, it's a great song. It also comes at this really hilarious point in musical theater where if you have a great earworm or a great song, you have two more encores of said song, not necessarily in a reprise situation like some enchanted evening in South Pacific, but literally the song gets finished, every the audience goes crazy, the person comes back out, the character comes back out and basically says, well, now that I have your attention, <laughs> let's do it again, and th- does it two more times. I always think it's kind of hilarious and fun, but I guess back then people's attention spans were much better than, than mine is in 2020. Yeah, that, that was also very much like a Cole Porter signature where it's like once you got the formula, you just plug in the new like specifics and you got like five more verses. Brush up your Shakespeare. Yeah. Let's turn it into an 11-minute number. Yeah. yeah. Well, it is also interesting because when Carol uh, talks about it, I have her memoir, Just Lucky, I guess. Um, <laughs> have you read the quote on the back? About being a prostitute? Yes. <laughs> Iconic. Yeah. The name of my book is Just Lucky, I guess, referring to the old joke, client to prostitute. What's a nice girl like you doing in a place like this? Prostitute. Just lucky, I guess. 
I have a right to repeat this old joke because I have been prostituting myself all my life. I've been making love to an audience since the fourth grade. It's kind of interesting to me that what I do on stage is legal, whereas what's done in bed is not. Carol Channing said <laughs> sex workers' rights. Yeah. And um, just the <laughs> dust jacket design is very like Old Navy, like 2002, um, which <laughs> I love. But anyway, <laughs> I guess that is actually a good segue to what I was going to say, because she was like seeing like people do this song as kind of like a sexy number and not as like a stand-up routine, like is really like mind boggling to me because the reason I had so much success with them is because I, it was like my type five. Wow. It was her Netflix special. (laughs) That's really cool. Okay. So we've met Lorelai now, and we have already talked about how she's interested in love by means of money. Her companion for this trip, kind of her chaperone to keep watch on her is her BFF, Dorothy. And Dorothy, being a brunette, is constantly in awe of Lorelai's gentleman admirers. She, however, couldn't be less interested in money. She's interested in a hot dude to make the whoopee with. <laughs> like, talk about women's live. This this one, she's on the she's on the prowl, and it just so happens that on this cruise trip that they're about to go on is an entire Olympic team of are they rowers? What are they? They're, They're just Olympians. I feel like Jane Russell, especially in the movie, is very much like the blueprint for Samantha Jones and Sex in the City. Oh my <laughs> gosh, that's so true. Like so much of her like line deliveries are very like, I'll be over there. <laughs> right? It's very, very deadpan, very zinger. Yeah. She really is phenomenal and does not disappear into the background, like you said. Lorelai does have a boyfriend and his name is Gus Esmond and I believe he's from money because his family invented buttons. I mean this is like so 1930s madcap musical theater and she has to say goodbye to him because she's going on the ship to go to France to perform at you know this cabaret club and Gus is really worried because he's very well aware that men really love Lorelai. She's saying, don't worry, baby. Don't worry, daddy. She calls him daddy. Uh, don't worry, Another daddy. Another pioneer. You're... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? All gay men, you owe it to Lorelai Lee. So Gus sings Bye Bye Baby, which is, like you said, on a, one of the great earworms as well. He also gives her a telegram. And this is what I've even done the show, and I don't remember why someone would behave in this manner. But he gives her a telegram And she's terrified to open it because she's afraid that he's going to break up with her. Even though he just said, bye bye, baby, you're my love. I'm really worried about all these guys being around you. And so she doesn't open it and yet assumes that they are going to break up. So she needs to go look for another man. I actually, so I read uh, some of the, I sort of skimmed through the libretto for this. He, she gets the telegram after they're already on the boat and she sees that it's from Arkansas. So she's like, he and his dad are in Arkansas to dig up this dirt about me and he's going to break up with me. Oh, the secret, of course, of course. Yeah, because I think it's kind of framed that he needs to like go stand in for his dad at a button convention and like he's, there's even like a very funny joke about zippers in there someplace But then I think, like Anna said, it's like revealed that, you know, his dad's trying to dig up some dirt. Because the dad doesn't approve of them being together. Right. Yeah. What makes matters even stickier is that on board the cruise is this guy named Josephus. And he is to zippers what her actual boyfriend is to buttons. So she's like, great, I'm upgrading from buttons to zippers. Here's my new love interest. But because she's a giving and gracious person, she's also on the lookout for her BFF. She finds somebody by the name of Henry Spofford III, which in the film version is like a six-year-old. <laughs> I love that. That's such a fun change. That kid is, is. is really intense. Yeah. Is it? <laughs> he follows direction. He can really deliver those lines. Dorothy is instead more interested in the Olympic sportsmen. And so she does the, she sings this great song called I love what I'm doing when I'm doing it for love, which did not make it into the film. And I think is too bad. And that's actually, was it too risque? 
I mean, that's what I would guess. And the fun thing is that t- song title is a direct Anita loose quote, either from the, is it? Yeah, it's either from the actual text of the novel or just something that she said. But in the Julie Stein biography, it's uh, attributed to her. <laughs> yes, reading the nice. Julie Stein biography. <laughs> it's a fantastic song, and I actually like it better than the one that they put in the film. Oh. However, we have to talk about the one in the film. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and just to, to give the preface, when Anna and I watched this in our film theory class, um, it was during the unit on queer film theory, um, and I think that this number makes a very good case for that <laughs> because no, it's they put very them, homoerotic. Yeah, put them in those little like nude speedos. It's it's one thing that it's like this big. Like yeah. the the bathing suit is so tiny. It's a completely other thing that it is the same color as their flesh. <laughs> it feels like one thing would be too much. And yet they're both there. And not only that, they're doing this amazing Jack Cole choreography that involves Full spread eagle, number 17. (laughs) And speaking of Jack Cole, he had his assistant Gwen Verdon on the scene um, coaching the ladies on how to, you know, because you can tell that Marilyn really can't dance, you know, not to deflect from this number, which is amazing, but like Mm -hmm. sort of, and even just like the way they kind of walk in sync, like they're always on the same leg, kind of like, Mm -hmm. you know, shimmying in the same way. That's, that's all Gwen. I... I'm obsessed with Jack Cole. I love Jack Cole choreography so much because I he he's somebody that we don't talk about a lot because the work of his that we've seen isn't incredibly present with the exception of this film. But like you look at all that jazz and how bump, bump, a group of people doing kind of isolations on accents of music, that's all Jack Cole. This whole theatrical jazz choreographic style is really attributed to him. And I love it. It's so intricate, so musical. Have you seen uh, the Kismet movie? Yes, Kismet yes. too. That's we the other one. We just watched that, that for an episode, and I was totally blown away by the choreography in that movie. It's so good. He understood the frame in ways that I think had only really been capitalized upon by tappers, if that makes sense. Interesting. Like we, I can see that. We figured out how to film tap dance really dynamically kind of early in in the film industry, but we hadn't really figured out how to do ballet jazz. And he figured out how to fit all of these people in the frame and to make it look really interesting and dynamic. Yeah, my uh, favorite performance of his, or my favorite of his choreography is this Cheetah Rivera performance of Beale Street Blues. Um, That was, I think it was for- I don't think I've seen this. Yeah, it's on YouTube, but um, it's like the most amazing thing. And I like watch it so much. That's so cool. I'll have to check that out. Now, the other interesting thing about the film version in this number is that Jane Russell gets pushed into the pool and it w- it looks like an accident and it was an accident. <laughs> oh, really? And Howard, yeah. She carries it off though. And Howard Hawks saw it in the dailies and was like, we got to keep it. It's too, it's too perfect. So they orchestrated the music to have this like of her like falling into the pool but you watch it and it some dude is like jumping over her and his foot just like catches her and pushes her into the pool and so then they re-choreographed the ending of that number to deal with pulling her out of the pool she's like blinded by the mascara (laughs) running in her eyes and she smiles and and makes this whole pose but that was completely accidental and it's iconic now yeah. yeah, it totally, it makes the number. It makes the number because it's like an exclamation point at this like end of a sentence that's like, these men don't care about me. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. That reminds me, just a quick aside. Um, Please. So, you know, Anita Luce wrote the sequel, but Gentleman Mary Brunettes. And then like, a, you know, a couple decades later, she was she, like being interviewed on TV and they were like, are you going to write a third one? And she's like, yeah, it's going to be called Gentlemen Prefer Gentlemen. And they were like, cut the, cut the, <laughs> cut the tape. <laughs> like, turn it. like they ended the interview because they oh were so scandalized. Gosh. So she's, she is definitely on her mind. She's a hero, man. Yeah. We don't talk about Anita Luce. We talk about um, Dorothy Parker. We talk about yeah. Dorothy Parker. We talk about other people of that time, Claire Booth Luce, but like Anita Luce, man. Yeah, there's no biography of her. It's like, where's the biopic? You know, get, get the Anita Luce story out there. Yeah. Thank Even, you. You know, I don't want to curse it, but maybe this is a job for Ryan Murphy. 
I don't say that lightly, <laughs> but, you know, he might be the only one who's got the, the, the pull at this point and the to interest make to make it happen. You know, I, I, I know there's a lot of baggage <laughs> with, the, with the Ryan Murphy joint. I don't know if I would even watch it, but, you know, we got to get her out there. We got to get it out some way. Yeah. And, like, also, um, there's this amazing, I mean, for anyone interested in sort of her era, there's this, like, amazing television documentary from the 80s called Hollywood, A Celebration of the American Silent Film that um, just has, like, the most amazing interviews with, like, her and all these, like, very old silent film stars, like, right before they died, so... Highly recommend. Wow. Because yeah. she lived a long time. She lived into her 90s. 90s. Yeah. Yeah, Quan. Back to the show. <laughs> there are there are a couple of songs in this musical that are 100% ridiculous. <laughs> the first one is called It's Delightful Down in Chile. And it is Lorelai trying to persuade this other rich man on the ship by the name of Sir Francis to buy a tiara because Lorelai's obsessed with jewelry. So she's basically using her womanly wiles to get Sir Francis to lend her the money for that. Um, why is she singing about Chile? Anyone's guess. Very interesting, though. Um, so this was the last musical, the last book musical that premiered of the 40s. But through the mm-hmm. decade, out of the 262 shows that opened... 50 of them offered a South of the Border or Spanish song and dance. Um, so wow. it was just part of the deal. I mean, Guys and Dolls has it. Yeah, it was Havana. just like a very Absolutely. popular Absolutely, you're exactly right. The Three Caballeros, that Disney cartoon, isn't it from the same period? That, Which that was all true. about South America. Yeah, and also um, the conga sequence in Wonderful Town. Oh, yes. Yes. Where's my Wonderful Town episode? I'm I mean, officially very disappointed. Wonderful Why Town and this, I feel like we're probably close. Uh, they're neck and neck for us. but Yeah. And I mean, I think that's one of the other few like female buddy comedy type musicals. Although I think they're separated for a lot of it. They're kind of like doing their own thing. Living their but, own story. Yeah. Speaking of which, they get to Paris and... Even though Dorothy didn't have success with the Olympians, she's having a lot of success with the guy that Lorelai picked out for her. And they're like in a park and they're singing. It's a song called Sunshine. There's a lot of French in this, a lot of France in this musical too. We romanticized France and South America. That's when you get a can-can a few years later. The French guys and dolls. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I never thought of that. That's so true though. Um, Good point. And I do think that this is like a very classic kind of 20s trope is like Americans in Europe and, you know, the Beekmans in the play are like kind of played a little more like posh, like British traveling class. And I think Mm -hmm. that like so much of why the original novel was so well received was that like seeing these like two wacky American broads like in Europe got everyone chuckling. (laughs) Yeah. Because it doesn't really have a plot, the book. It's just sort of like a travelogue of these like little vignettes. On Lorelai's side of romance, she's with Mr. Zipper Man, and they go to cocktails, but little does she know that he doesn't drink. He instead eats vegetables. And he has this amazing, and I can't, this is like an unknown gem. Everybody out there, it's called I'm a Tingle, I'm a Glow. It's like Mark Kudish written all over him, right? (laughs) Where he's like boasting in how healthy he is because he eats vegetables. It's such a fantastic song. I can't recommend high enough. Five stars. (laughs) Again, ahead of its time, you know, the like raw vegan juicing, like, (laughs) you know, it's like all the trends come back. Everything old is new again. And it's prohibition too. Like I think that that's like a big part of it that I also didn't really um, think about until like that's like something that like, you know, is lost in the movie is that like there's this jazz age. Like everyone like can't wait till they get out on the sea because you can drink again. So the first act ends with Gus, the actual boyfriend of Lorelai, coming to France to see her. By the way, he wasn't trying to break up with her like she thought. But he sees that she's dating Mr. Zippers. Now he's upset. And so he starts dating a dancer named Gloria and vows to make her famous, which enrages Lorelai. Meanwhile, Dorothy and Henry have fallen in love. Henry proposes. She turns him down. 
because she says he's too good for her. And that's the end of the first act. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, at intermission, I want to play a game with you guys. Ooh. Because gentlemen prefer blondes, and because there are so many famous blondes attached to not only this show, but the song Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, we're going to play a game called Carol, Marilyn, or Madonna. I will read a quote, and you guys need to tell me if it's Carol Channing, Marilyn Monroe, or Madonna. Ooh, this is so fun. Okay. We never, yeah, we never really play games fun. on our show. <laughs> <laughs> okay, quote number one. I am terribly shy, but of course no one believes me. Come to think of it, neither would I. Marilyn? That sounds like, yeah, I think that's Marilyn. Carol Channing. Ooh. Right? I'm trying to read them in a way that doesn't <laughs> give it away because right. yeah. come to think of it, neither I, I don't, I, <laughs> They have I very distinctive, uh, you know. Well, exactly. the worst thing about the Delivery. audio book is that someone reads it in like a breathy Marilyn Monroe voice and I'm like, <laughs> no, no. It's like ASMR. No, no, no. <laughs> Next quote. I laugh at myself. I don't take myself completely seriously. I think that's another quality that people have to hold on to. You have to laugh at yourself. I bet that's Marilyn. Because I don't think Madonna laughs at herself. Yeah, I think that that checks out. Madonna? Wow. Really? Wow. Well, good for her. Yeah. But I agree with the sentence. It's in private that that she laughs at herself. Yeah, I mean, I feel like she takes herself so seriously. Imperfection is beauty. Madness is genius. And it's better to be absolutely ridiculous than absolutely boring. That feels like Carol, but I feel like we've just uh, guessed Marilyn. I know, we're just going to keep guessing Marilyn until we get one. (laughs) You know, I think there's like this, you know, the the sickness where like every single quote gets attributed to Marilyn, like, you know, sort of the social media thing where it's like, I'm a little bit reckless and, you know, I absolutely like I'm a cra- I'm crazy, but you have to love me. <laughs> like, whatever. I'm actually surprised. I was expecting this game to be a lot easier than it actually is. Yeah, this is hard. That was Marilyn. Okay. okay. <laughs> we got one. Yeah. Regret leads to negativity and negativity kills creativity. I bet that's Carol. Yeah, that feels very Christian scientist. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Call it like it is. You're so right. That's Carol Channing. All right. I wouldn't have turned out the way I was if I didn't have all those old fashioned values to rebel against. Madonna? Yeah, that feels Madonna. Yep. Because she was raised Catholic, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, she has a lot of quotes about Catholicism. Okay. I never understood the use of vulgar language, but the definition of risque is open to interpretation. That feels like Marilyn to me. Yeah. Carol. Uh, Carol. Which is kind of true. That book, every page has something sexual on it, and it's kind of fascinating. Yeah. It's also like you can just tell she, it's very organized in like only a way that probably makes sense to her. Yeah. There was no editor in that, <laughs> in that autobiography. Dogs never bite me, just humans. I think that's Marilyn. <laughs> yeah. Poor Marilyn. <laughs> Interesting stuff, though. I, once again, like I know I'm probably proving my own point, but there are there's so much overlap between these women and kind of the wisdom that they found and the approach that they had to their careers as different as they were. And yet they all have diamonds are a girl's best friend in common. Yeah. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, listeners. Have you tried Factor yet? Remember Factor Meals? They were supposed to send me a box to try out, but they don't ship to Hawaii. So now I'm stuck with my Taco Bell. And now it's up to you. 
It's up to you to try it and let me know how it is because it's May and we can't eat like it's the holidays anymore. We're trying to get our summer bodies together and Factors fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting food. You can choose from six menu preferences to help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, whatever you want, it's here. Head to factormeals.com slash musicaltheater50 that's musical theater with an er and use code musical theater 50 to get 50 percent off your first box plus 20 percent off your next month that's code musical theater 50 at factormeals.com slash musical theater 50 to get 50 percent off your first box plus 20 percent off your next month while your subscription is active okay act two everyone's at a paris club there are these two detectives that are trying to track down Lady Beekman's tiara, which we all know Sir Francis gave to Lorelai. The floor show at this club begins, and the first big performance is Gloria, the girl that Gus has started dating to make Lorelai mad. And she has this number called Mamie is Mamie. And then there's this song called Coquette, which is insanely high. The highest song... like. Billy Porter High. Like, I I don't know why anyone is singing the song in the stratosphere. That gives way to Lorelai singing Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. Here's the big number. We've already talked about it, but let's, let's really delve into it. Why is Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend one of the true landmarks in our culture? Because it is, and it gets redone over and over again, whether it's in Birds of Prey or Moulin Rouge or Madonna's Material Girl, it doesn't go away. Um, I mean, I think just like the the staging and the choreography and the way that the the way that it's shot in the film version is just so amazing. I think it it just it really demands attention. Nobody should ever worry about wearing pink and red together. <laughs> ever. Look at this movie. It's so stellar. It looks so so cool. You got that red background. You got Marilyn in pink. It's it's awesome. One thing I forgot about are like the women who are like chandeliers. Yeah. It's absolutely yes. amazing. I mean, it is interesting. Like, I feel like it is one of the most, think of how many songs from the 1940s like are still in the public consciousness the way that this is. Like, you can probably count them on one hand, especially songs from musicals. It's like pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. It has like the perfect tinge of like irony, but like also kind of being true. Like I think that it's like a really palatable like commentary on like material, like American material culture, and and it is very earwormy as we mentioned. But it's also like sort of thinking about you know the history of like diamonds. <laughs> this was like something I learned recently was that in the 1800s diamonds were super rare, and then in the late 1800s they discovered like all of these diamond mines in South Africa, and were like, and so all of a sudden there were like tons of diamonds and they weren't rare anymore. So basically every like diamond producer like formed this conglomerate to sort of create the illusion of scarcity to, to like drive up their value. And then sort of between like the depression and the war, like people in America weren't really buying diamonds anymore. And like they had really become devalued. So they, they like got this ad agency and they were like, how do we make it? So the people start buying diamonds again. They were like, we need to like associate them with love. And that's when like the diamond engagement ring thing really started by wow. the time the movie rolled around there was this like whole other connotation to diamonds and like giving people diamonds and like what it sort of meant i didn't realize i mean it makes perfect sense but i thought you know diamonds are forever so so yeah so that that slogan came in was like they came up with that in the late 40s so this was like right around this era a diamond is so, forever so diamonds are a girl's best friend was written before really the engagement ring became a thing. Yeah, Anita Luce was on it. But if you notice, they don't really talk about diamond engagement rings in it because it wasn't a thing yet. It's more like, yeah, you know, not the diamond the tiara. In the movie they do, but like, you know, she wants the tiara, she's like wants, right. you know, the bracelets. It's not really about the rings. Wow. I love musical theater. Who knew that I would have this <laughs> this conversation? <laughs> and maybe a little off topic, but the other diamond lyric I always think about, which is very different and kind of speaks to what Anna said, is a Fiona Apple lyric from the song Red, 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 which is, I don't understand about diamonds and why men buy them. What's so impressive about a diamond except the mining? But it's dangerous work trying to get to you too. 
And I think if I didn't have to kill, kill, kill myself doing it, maybe I wouldn't think so much of you. Wow. <laughs> Fiona Apple. I man. mean, I think that Fiona Apple really um, carries the torch of like a, a lot of the stuff that I love about this music from like the, you know, musical theater music from this era. Like I think that Fiona Apple carries the torch in songwriting. Style. I love that. And I think it checks out too, because she comes from a Broadway family. Exactly, yeah. The I know. When is the, when is she either going to write her own musical or when are they going to do like a jukebox musical yeah. of Fiona Apple? <laughs> That's what I want to know. There are going to be cat fights over who gets to sing criminal. <laughs> okay. Did you see, um, hustlers? Did you see hustlers? So I also feel Such like that, that is song. very in this whole gentleman prefer blondes universe. Oh, totally. 100%. <laughs> hustlers is like the 2020 gentlemen prefer blondes Lorelai was the original hustler (laughs) so good okay after two encores of diamonds are a girl's best friend it's just basically let's let's figure out how to wrap things up and oh there is this great song called the homesick blues that all of the Americans sing so you got Dorothy you got Lorelai they all sing the homesick blues about missing America which is really it's a fun Mm -hmm. song Nothing really happens in Act 2, but we have all of these songs plotted up against each other. Dorothy is just standing there and then all of a sudden goes, Hey, everybody, listen to me! And starts singing this song called Keeping Cool with Coolidge. Which is all about President Coolidge. And that's really all that happens emotionally or motivationally (laughs) to make this song happen. It's absolutely bonkers. Um, And from the Julie Stein biography... One morning, Leo said, why don't we do a thing with Coolidge? He was president about then, I think. Keeping <laughs> keeping cool with Coolidge. And I like that, Julie answered. In the afternoon, Julie delivered his Coolidge music to Maple Street. And by the end of the day, Leo had set the lyrics. Like, I would have guessed that that's what they did. And that's literally <laughs> what they did. They, they could still get away with it then. It's a great, but it's also like a really fun song. Once you push past the point of like, what? (laughs) Then you're like, huh, kind of a bop. Now we still have the problem of Lorelai wanting to win back Gus. And in order to do so, she needs to come clean about her past, Dark Twist. And then she also needs to impress his dad, who has always been against their union. So the way that she does that is that she comes to see Gus and his father dressed in an outfit made completely of buttons because they are the button kings. And because earlier she had worn a dress with a zipper, it was, you know, she needed to set things right. So when she walks in, the dad is immediately charmed because here's this girl dressed all in buttons and he finally gives permission for them to get married they sing a song called button up with esmond (laughs) and uh, i guess everyone lives happily ever after you know it's i mean and we kind of skipped over it rightfully so but like i can't think of that many other musicals where like the title song is such like a (laughs) non-event oh my god you're right it's not even they'd like cut it right out of the movie nobody Uh missed it it's you know it's all about diamonds are a girl's best friend no that's so true there is a song called gentlemen prefer blondes it's fine (laughs) yeah it's definitely it is what it is Oh, I forgot one more thing I wanted to say about Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, which is yes. I've always thought of that, of the Marilyn version as like evidence that Marilyn is secretly a better vocalist than people give her credit for because there are some like kind of belty moments in that. But apparently she got help on those. She was dubbed by Marnie Nixon just on certain lines, which is like they did a really good job blending that because I think it's very hard. Like it, it really matches her. We just did an episode on My Fair Lady. So of course we talked about Marnie Nixon because she was the great Hollywood dubber. Originally they were going to dub both of them. And then the musical director was like, I think we can splice together a couple of different takes and make it sound good. And that's what they did. And and I'm glad they did because I love Marilyn's voice. I think it, yeah. like that whisper, quick vibrato sort of thing is so great. And she and Carol kind of have that in common where they have these very unique, not what we would think of as traditionally like good voices, but they have like uh-huh. so much personality, you know, in their own way. Although Carol That's... has uh, more power at her <laughs> disposal. Years later, after the movie of Gentlemen for Blondes, 
Carol Channing wanted to do Lorelai Lee again, but they couldn't. And this is 100% my opinion. So if it's wrong, please correct me. But there's no way that they could do Gentlemen Prefer Blondes in its original title because it had become this Maryland vehicle. It, had, it turned her into a, an enormous star. And yet Carol did kind of have possession of the role first. So instead, they created a new show called Lorelei, in which she got to do all of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, but they bookended it with her like looking back at the past so that she could also be in her 50s and playing the role again. I mean, that's that's kind of what I get from it. Well, um, kind of the tea about that. Um, apparently, there was a um, revival starring Bernadette Peters um, that was in the talks that people were talking about doing. But Carol was like super possessive of it in a way that she was able to sway them to instead of doing this revival with a young Bernadette Peters, like rewrite like the book of the show and uh, create this new version for her. And then it finally got the Tony nomination because yeah. she got nominated for Best Actress. And to bring it all full circle, um, Brandon Maggart, Fiona Apple's dad, played Jephias <laughs> in Lorelei. So, wow. wow. That's amazing. Also, there is a performance from Lorelei featuring my, one of my favorite songs from the score, I Love What I'm Doing When I'm Doing It For Love, which it didn't make it into the movie. It's being performed by Tamara Long, who played Dorothy Shaw in, in this version in the 70s. And they were performing, I think, for a telethon. Anyway, it's this huge production number that gives way to an amazing tap break because Tamara Long was an amazing tapper. I say was. I'm not sure if she's still with us or not. So hopefully she is. But she was the original Mona Kent in Dames at Sea. Mm. Um, Anyway, incredible performer, amazing voice. Her dancing is brilliant. I highly recommend everybody go watch that performance. It's really exciting. Yeah, that song is very fun. It, it's like they replaced it with almost the same song in the movie. Exactly. Thank you both so much for, for doing this with me. Um, what are we walking away with today? I think for me, I am like, it makes me happy to see like Americans being able to like laugh at themselves a little bit. And like, I think that like, it being like a little removed from like our contemporary moment, like makes it easier for people to kind of like look back on and be like, Oh, this, you know, silly show. But I think that there's still like, there's still a lot of play of like how Americans are kind of like perceived abroad. And it has a lot of fun commentary on American morals and values in a way that like something like Chicago does too. That's so true. And Anita Luce was really inspired to be able to give voice to that because this is a show and a story that would only happen in America at this point, whether it's through prohibition or the gender politics or the uh, consumerism, materialism, all of that of the Roaring Twenties. This is, for better or worse, a very American show. (laughs) Yeah, and I guess to like kind of sum that up, like when the novel was translated into Russian, like they were like, yes, like this is the perfect example of how like Americans treat women and like how capitalism is like it's like oppressive. (laughs) oppressive. (laughs) That's so funny. Like this isn't funny at all. (laughs) This is Chekhov. Scary. As always, if you have recommendations for shows you'd like us to cover on a musical theater podcast, you can always email me at a musical podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at a musical podcast for more great content. And while you're at it, take a trip over to our T Public store where you can find designs based on favorite moments of episodes past and present. Anna and Tim, tell everybody about how about your show. It's coming back, right? It's coming back someday. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, you can find us anywhere you find podcasts. Uh, it's called My Little Tonys. We're at My Little Tonys on Twitter and Instagram. And when we're, you know, active, we are pretty active on there. When we're active, it's active, um, which should be very soon. It's just a nap. You just yeah, need a little exactly. nap. Exactly. But it. yeah, thank you so much for having us. This was delightful. Yes. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I love this podcast so much because I think that like for so much of my life, I like didn't know any of the plots of musicals. I would just like listen to cast recordings and like imagine what was happening. So thanks to you, I've been learning a lot. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. I know it gets to be laborious sometimes, but I always find myself like really invested in the stories. It's 
It's really fun. It's important. Thank you for saying that's that. A, that's the part that we kind of brush over too sometimes because <laughs> we're like, we got to talk about like six shows in this one episode. So it's like, who cares what happens? Right. No, absolutely. Uh, thanks to everybody for listening and tagline. What was the tagline? What did you say? Lorelai was the original hustler. Yes. <laughs> and don't forget everyone. <laughs> Lorelai was the original hustler. <laughs> Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.